our family of listeners is growing every week. Thanks for listening live and through all our digital broadcasting channels. Spread the word to your friends to join our weekly conversation. It's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. This is Christian Questions, our website, ChristianQuestions.com. Here's Rick and Jonathan. Barbara Deming once said, Vengeance is not the point. Change is. But the trouble is that most in most people's mind, the thought of victory and the thought of punishing the enemy coincide. Welcome to Christian Questions. I'm Rick, and this is not your typical Christian commentary as we look at Bible-related topics from a different perspective. And you might say that ours is a long-term approach as we've been broadcasting the good news of the gospel for over 18 years. Um, Jonathan, in that long-term, different perspective, has its basis in three things. Godly principles, family values, honest dialogue. Always done in a politically free zone. Rick, today is our 969th broadcast, and we've talked the gospel with listeners on several talk radio stations throughout the eastern and the central United States for many years. Yeah, and uh, we figured it was time to bring the good news to the whole world by way of podcasting, so here we are. Folks, we thank you for joining us today. This is a call-in format. We are caller-friendly, so let's get started. Jonathan, what's the subject matter on the table? This is something special tonight. Yes, Rick, our question is, will God's vengeance squash us like bugs? Like bugs? (laughs) And our theme text is found in Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 8. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up as a witness. Indeed, my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out on them my indignation, all my burning anger, for all the earth will be devoured by the fire of my zeal. So we're talking about... The vengeance of God. Vengeance, indignation, burning anger, and jealousy. These are some of the words that the Bible uses to describe God's reactions to this present evil world. To put it mildly, God is not happy. Can you blame him? I mean, look at us. Look at what this world does, what it stands for, and how we treat one another. God will not allow such sin and corruption to continue. He will act, and when he does, there will be no mistaking his response. The Bible emphatically describes what looked like world-ending events. The events are called the Day of Vengeance, Armageddon, the Time of Trouble, the Day of Wrath. So wait, are we talking about God being a God of love? And how could this vengeance, then, possibly be interpreted as an act of love? Is God so vengeful and angry that he's going to squash us like bugs, Or is there another way to understand what his vengeance is, how it works, and what it accomplishes? So, Jonathan, that is what we're looking at today. Will God's vengeance squash us like bugs? And that sounds so dramatic and kind of gross, if you ask me. It does, Rick. And we're really going to have to look into both the Old and New Testaments to try to figure this subject out. Prophecy in the Old What did Jesus say in the new? This is going to be an interesting uh, study. Well, yeah, you're right. And you know what? It's always our objective with each subject that we choose to approach it in a biblical and very relevant, 
practical way. We search out the original context of the scriptures that we cite, we try and find their true meaning, and combine those scriptures with the pressing issues of our day to give you all something to really, really think about. So, you're right. It's an Old and New Testament study in process to figure out what God's vengeance really means, what's it there to accomplish, and how is it supposed to work. So, let's start with Jesus. Let's start in the New Testament. First of all, what did Jesus say about the dramatic Old Testament prophecies of destruction? So, Jonathan, let's go to Matthew 24. Now, now, Matthew 24 is Jesus' prophecy of his own return, and it is a so chock-full of, of details. We're only going to take one little tiny part and try to, uh, to, to explain that at this point. Let's go to Matthew 24, 21 through 24. For then there will be a great tribulation, such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders, so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. So in this particular prophecy of Matthew 24, in this small section, Jesus says there will be a great tribulation such as not has ever occurred since the beginning of the world. So he's talking to us in terms of this is bigger than the biggest thing that's ever happened at any time under any circumstance. That's right, Rick. This is the climax of all climaxes. This is going to be huge. Right. Okay. So he's giving us a strong warning. There's now there, there's, there's no question about that. He's giving us a strong warning. Go ahead. That, that's right. But Rick, in this, in Matthew 24, there's several things that are really interesting here. So you're not going to let it go, are you? I'm not. <laughs> Life will be saved on earth. Remember it says, unless those days be cut short, uh, um, no life would have been saved. Okay. Well, because he's cutting it short, there will be life saved. All right, and you know what? That, that's such a huge point. It's such it's a veiled point, and it's a quiet point because when we read this, what we see is not trouble like this has ever occurred ever in the history of mankind. And you're right. The next line gives you that little ray of hope that says, "But it's not going to destroy everything." Isn't that cool? It is. Now, now on. On the end of the, the scripture, I was thinking there's going to be a lot of imposters of Christ at yes. the very end, right before God's vengeance. That's interesting. It is. And so Jesus gives us a few lines talking about this incredible uh, period of, of, of tribulation, of trouble like you've never, ever seen. And a lot of people look at the world today and say, well, you know, this, this must be it. Well, you know what? This is the lead up to it. You know, not that we're trying to make you scared, but we're, we're not quite there yet, I don't think. And when you look at what Jesus says, it, it causes us to, to really take notice and say, okay, what does this really mean? What does this mean for me? What does this mean for my family? Do I have a life to look forward to? Those are the kinds of questions that you start to, to start to think about when you talk about a subject like this. Subject like this. So, Jonathan, as I started to say before, you wanted to go back and just <laughs> expand that scripture, <laughs> which is really, really important. 
you know, it's a very strongly stated warning that Jesus gives, but he doesn't talk about it a lot. You know, he mentions it here, and he really doesn't talk a whole lot about it. And you think, well, if it's going to be so bad, why wouldn't Jesus have spent half of his time talking about it? That, that's a great question. That's a good point. I never thought about it really like that. Well, and, and when we begin to think about it like that, Um, When we begin to think about it like that, we've got to go back and look through other things that Jesus said, because there's a reason. Of course, there's always a reason with Jesus, but there's a very specific and clear reason why he doesn't dwell on those kinds of things. You're listening to Christian Questions Live. Talk to us now by calling 866-985-4255, or contact us and leave us a question or leave us a message at ChristianQuestions.com. All right, so let's let's prove the point of Jesus in some ways, Jonathan, this is going to sound strange, but in some ways Jesus ignores the issue. Okay. <laughs> okay, let, let, well, let, let's, let's go to some proof of that, okay? Let's go to another, another part of Jesus' life. This is early in Jesus' life. This is in Luke chapter 4, verses 16 to 21, and he's in Nazareth here, and he's going into the synagogue on the Sabbath, and he's going to read some scripture. So let's take a look at that portion of what he reads and what it means. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as he was his custom, he entered the synagogue, and on the Sabbath stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book and found the place where it was written. Okay, now just pause there for a second, because... He's there, he's handed the book of Isaiah. Now, Isaiah's got, you know, it wasn't broken into chapters at that point, but it's got 61 chapters. So it's a long, long book. Jesus knows exactly what he's looking for. So he goes through this scroll and he finds an exact, precise passage. This has got to tell us that you better pay close attention because the precision with which he chooses this is going to speak volumes for what he says and what he doesn't say. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Okay, so he finds this very specific, particular passage in Isaiah. He reads it, and then he emphatically closes it up, and he goes and sits down. So it's like, now, now think about it. Usually when Jesus is in the synagogue and he's teaching, he doesn't just speak a few words and then sit down. He's got a whole lot to say. This time, he reads these few verses, and then he's done. And then he says to the audience, he says, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So you say, man, what is that? What, what, what kind of power, what, what is he talking about? So, so let's just go back over those, the, the verse, Jonathan, that he quoted from Isaiah um, and, and just get, get a sense of the, the power of it, okay? First, the Spirit of the Lord's upon me. That gets your attention. Absolutely. And it's because he anointed me to preach the gospel. Now, the gospel is being preached to the poor. That's another mm-hmm. interesting point. 
Okay? He's sent me to proclaim the release of captives. That would be good news because Israel was basically in captivity to Rome at this point in time. Absolutely. Then Recovery of the sight to the blind. So he's talking about, and, and we, we see in his ministry that that was a very literal, literal fulfillment, and to set free those who were oppressed. So you think, wow, Jesus came to do all really good things, really great things, really monumental things, and that's an exciting thing. And then Jesus, after he reads that, and, and, and the final verse, verse 19 says what there? Proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. So it's like, you know, you're just racking up those positive points, right? That's right. And he sits down and he says, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So, you know, this is our typical understanding of Jesus. He shows us the power of God for the healing and the freedom of mankind that he came to fulfill. And when we think of Jesus, that's what we think of. We, we do, but, but there was no vengeance there. No, of course not. So what's the next verse in the prophecy? And this is so important. Folks, pay close attention. We just outlined and discussed what Jesus said he came to do. And then he stops reading. But what's the very next line? And we go to Isaiah chapter 61, verse 2, uh, to find that out. To proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. So he doesn't read that. He doesn't no. read anything about vengeance. He doesn't, or the mourning part. He does not. He, he stops right after the favorable year of the Lord. So that's kind of strange, right? It, it is. So, so it, it, Jesus hmm. purposefully doesn't talk about the day of vengeance of our God. And who hasn't mourned the loss of life in this present evil world? Yeah. Well, you're right. Everyone, everyone can relate to that. We, we can't. But the question has got to remain like, okay, why wouldn't he talk about the day of vengeance of our God? Wouldn't that be an important thing to tell everybody at that point? Shouldn't they know if he's coming to do all these good things that there's this really difficult thing coming along as well? Why did he avoid it? Was he afraid of it? Did he forget to read it? I don't think so. And I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> and Jonathan, this is an important lesson. This is a really important lesson of putting prophecy where it belongs. Too often... Christian world will will open up books of prophecy and read them and proclaim them, and that all prophecy doesn't belong in all places. And we've got to understand that. And Jesus was a master at teaching us that by not reading about the day of vengeance. He was a master at that. See, he didn't read about the day of vengeance because it wasn't relevant to the message of his coming at that point in time. Okay. His first advent. Right. Oh, okay. Jesus came to pay the price and to set up the plan of reconciliation. All else would fall into place because of his ransom. Based on what he was about to do, everything else would fall into place. The day of vengeance would simply be a small step in a big plan. That so, Rick, it, it was a timing thing then. Yes. It, it wasn't time to proclaim vengeance. And the vengeance wasn't so bad that it had to be proclaimed every minute of every day, every minute of every day. And the point is, it's putting the day of vengeance into a box and saying it's a small part. 
what Jesus was saying is, I am here to fulfill the big part. There's this other small part I'm not going to tell you about now because it's not relevant now, but that comes later. But it's something different than what you're looking at right here and right now, and it's not important. That's a huge lesson in understanding the day of vengeance. That is, Rick. So what's God? We, we've got several God's vengeance lessons for us uh, today. What's the, the first God's vengeance lesson? God's vengeance is designed to fulfill the eternal purpose of reconciliation. Okay. We need to understand that. Now, Jonathan, you gave us some hints on that back in the Matthew 24 verse when you said, look, it talks about unless those days have been cut short, no life would have been saved. But those days will be cut short, so there will be life saved. And it's, so it's giving you a sense of there is some kind of ray of hope. Yes. So the first thing, if folks, if you want to understand God's vengeance, and again, the question, will God's vengeance squash us like bugs? If you want to understand God's vengeance, you have to be willing to understand the context of where God's vengeance comes in, why it comes in, and how it works. And when you put it in the context, it's suddenly a whole different ballgame in terms of trying to figure out and understand exactly um, uh, what, what it's saying. And, you know, Jonathan, much of Christianity seems to think that God's anger is just like ours, uncontrollable. So first, the ransom, a perfect life for a perfect life. What's next? Is God's vengeance like ours? Tradition vengeance? is special uncontrollable until it's and meant full to be shaken up. It's time to see if we stay on track with it or not. So the question, is God's vengeance like our vengeance? Is it uncontrollable? Is it full of rage? Is it something that we traditionally look at and say, wow, this is just really, really, really bad stuff? That's well, Rick, if you look at the definition of what vengeance is, we find in the Old Testament it means revenge. So oh. maybe it's like what everyone <laughs> says it's like. All right, so that, that's a good point. The word for vengeance, or one of the words for vengeance, literally does mean revenge. So yeah. let, let's examine that. And again, with the backdrop of the question that you asked at the end of the last segment, is it just like the vengeance of mankind, where it's, it's, it's emotional, it can be out of control, and because it's vengeance, it's okay to be out of control. Is that the way God's vengeance is? Let's look at Genesis 4.15, because that's a scripture that uses this word for revenge. Um, and this is God speaking about his vengeance. The Lord said unto him, Therefore, whosoever slayeth Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark upon Cain, lest any find him should kill him. Okay, so God says, now remember, Cain killed Abel. Yeah, the and, first murder in the human family's history. Right, and so, so God says that if someone comes after Cain, the vengeance, or revenge, if you will, on him will be sevenfold. Notice the clear calculation that God proclaims here. Vengeance designed to thwart wrongdoing. It's clear, it's calculated, and it's almost like it's emotionless. This is what's going to happen. Interesting. You know, what I was thinking about from this verse, Rick, is Cain had to live with his mistake the rest of his life, with regret, 
loneliness and guilt for what he did to his brother. And to me, that's more of a punishment than having him die because of what he did right there and then. Well, and, and, and I think that's an important point, and, and that's one of the reasons that God set it up that way so that he could live with that, so that the world could see that, could see the, you know, the, the rest of, not a lot of people around at that point, but the rest of the human race could see the consequences of such a wrongdoing, and importantly, so that the rest of the population would not take into their own hands the vengeance, the, the revenge, if you will, for death that belonged to God. So in, in, in God's expression of vengeance here, in this early, early scripture in Genesis, and this is the first, the first time you see his vengeance, it's cold and calculating. It's not full of emotion. It's not full of rage. It simply says, if anyone, um, uh, uh, therefore, whoever slays Cain, vengeance will be taken on him. In other words, you'll get yours. I'm telling you ahead of time, this is exactly what's going to happen, and I'm putting this in place so you don't do it. It's going to be a sevenfold uh, difficulty that you're, you're walking into. So I think that's an important lesson. Cold and calculated, but not emotional and out of control. Now, you still have to deal with the thought that, okay, but vengeance is vengeance, and we never tell people that they should take vengeance because it sounds so terrible. Right. Okay, so we've <laughs> got to go down that road a little bit more. So l- let's go a little bit further into the word. The root word for vengeance here, uh, what, is it, what does it mean? Well, Rick, it means to grudge, that is avenge or punish. Okay, so that's interesting, to avenge or punish. Now, when you avenge something, again, there can be a difference when you punish something. It, it, there's a difference than that feeling of vengeance, that feeling of rage, and uh, we're actually going to be doing a, a podcast on that in a few weeks uh, about um, revenge, about human revenge. We're talking about God's vengeance here. We're going to be focusing on human revenge in s- several weeks from now. But let's take another look at another scripture that uses this word, this root word for avenge or punish. This is in Judges chapter 16, verse 28. And Samson called upon the Lord and said, O Lord God, remember me, I pray thee, and strengthen me, I pray thee, only this once, O God, that I may be at once avenged of the Philistines for my two eyes. All right, so you know the story. Samson had this great strength. He gave in to temptation. He lost his great strength. He's being mocked by the Philistines. He's tied between these two great pillars at this great feast, and they put his eyes out. Literally, they burned his eyes out. And he's praying to God that he may be avenged for his eyes, that he may uh, punish them for, for doing such inhuman things to him. So, and the result was the Lord gave him the strength, and many died that day uh, because of that strength that he was given. Including Samson. Samson. Oh, yes, himself. So... Yes. so but he was able to avenge against the enemies who treated him so, so inhumanely. And, and you think about that and say, okay, that's what it means, that's what that root, root, root word means, to avenge. Another scripture, and again, this is now in Leviticus 19, 17 and 18, and with this verse, we're looking at God giving Moses the law that Israel is supposed to abide by. So again, you've got to look at this as, here's the clear calculation of God 
telling man how to behave, if you will. So Leviticus 19, 17, and 18. You shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. You may surely reprove your neighbor, but shall not incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Okay, so it's interesting because it starts out, you shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. You're not supposed to live with hatred in your heart for those who are around you, even if they do something that's wrong to you. And I think that's an important point to take in terms of if God is teaching us to be that way, to not walk around with hate in our heart toward those who would do us wrong, then it must be coming from his character, his, his internal character that says you've got to rise above those emotional kind of reactions. But, but where's the justice in that, Rick? You know, there is that scripture, and we do have to remember it in Romans twelve nineteen: Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. And that's where the justice is, right there. <laughs> you know, Not our justice. <laughs> right. So, so God is saying in this verse exactly that. He's saying, look, do not take vengeance. Then he says, nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself, for I am the Lord. And, and I think that's an important point. He's comparing vengeance and a grudge as two separate kinds of things. And when we understand that, what we see is that, again, vengeance is looked at in, in much more of a cold and calculating way rather than in a way that, uh, that is just a, a, a venting of anger and a venting of frustration and a venting of that rage that might overwhelm us. We'd love to talk to you right now. We're live. Call us at 866-985-4ALL. That's 866-985-4255. Or leave us a comment at ChristianQuestions.com. So in the law, in Leviticus, like we were just talking about, vengeance really is implying an action, a just action. Do not take a just action against your brother or hold a grudge. Again, Rick, it's not emotional. There's no emotional action presented here. Right, and I think that's important if, because if we want to understand the vengeance of God, we need to understand how he presents it to us, how he presents the whole idea of vengeance to us, so we can put it in the right category when we approach it. Now, in the New Testament, Jonathan, we're not going to look up a bunch of scriptures or a bunch of words, but there's three main words that carry the same thought of just action, not emotional action in the New Testament. So, so just kind of definition-wise, wh- what do they mean? Vindicate, retaliate, punish, retribution, carrying out, that is a punisher. Okay, so same thing. It's vindicating. Again, when you vindicate someone or something, you put them back into the standing that they belonged originally. It doesn't have to be done with great emotion. It doesn't have to be done with, there, I got you. It's done with putting things back the way they belong. That's what God's vengeance really truly is. And we want bringing to... things back into harmony is, is really what I'm hearing from you, Rick. Right, right. And that's exactly it. So now we're going to have to start looking at prophecies because the prophecies, look, 
The prophecies don't sound like, hey, God's just putting things back into harmony. <laughs> you are right. It sounds <laughs> like earthquakes and fire and whirlwinds and floods and destruction and blood in the streets up to the bridles of the horses and on and on. And, on. and so you say, wait a minute. You're telling me that God's vengeance is putting things back in order and that those are the <laughs> prophecies? We've got some explaining to do on that. <laughs> we do. <laughs> okay, so before we get there, we're going to go there in, in a moment. The next God's vengeance lesson is what? God's vengeance, by definition, is purposeful and not reactionary. Got to remember that point. God's vengeance is purposeful and it's not reactionary. So... The day of vengeance is simply a step in the process of reconciliation. And God's vengeance is therefore purposeful, like you just said. Now, we can look at what the day of vengeance actually looks like. And we're going to go to a prophecy in Nahum chapter 1, verses 2 through 9. But before we go there, let's go to, the, to a documentary on the imminent future, uh, the Battle of Armageddon, okay? This is a documentary by Aurora Productions. This is just the introduction and we want to play it for you because to give you a sense of the, of, the, of the look at the day of Armageddon and what it feels like to so many people. I'm not looking forward to it. Everything's just going to keep going as normal. A lot of wars. We can't even begin to think about the increase in technology. Cash society. Lots of problems. A new world order. You know, certain things like ozone and overpopulation, that type of stuff. What about you? Do you think there's any truth to the warnings of the modern-day prophets of doom? Is the world really teetering on the brink of catastrophe? Could indeed a comet or meteor collide with Earth and obliterate life on our planet? Will unparalleled natural disasters such as catastrophic earthquakes or floods destroy entire cities or countries? Will a breakdown in our computer system cause an abrupt ending to civilization as we know it? Or will mankind simply destroy itself? I don't know, Jonathan. The guy didn't give you very many good, uh, good options there, did he? <laughs> no, he didn't <laughs> at all. So, Let's do this. Let's go into one of the actual Old Testament prophecies, and there's lots of them. And we chose this prophecy in Nahum because it's very straightforward. It's very straightforward. It talks about lots and lots and lots of destruction. Uh, and and it, it, I think it's a good place to kind of go back to and say, okay, what does it all really mean? Now, remember, we've talked about God's vengeance having a purpose and God's vengeance being not reactionary in its in its. Um, Execution. So Nahum chapter 1, verses 2 through 9. Let's go right now, verses 2 and 3. A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Now, we just got finished saying that God's vengeance is purposeful and not reactionary. And this verse says, the Lord is avenging and wrathful. <laughs> you know, he takes vengeance on his adversaries. He reserves wrath for those who are, are, are guilty so they can be punished. I mean, it sounds angry. It sounds mad. And it is angry. There's no question about that. So here's the thing. God's anger, what's it at? It's at sin, Rick. It's at sin. It's at sin. And God will 
always, always, and eventually avenge anything that dwells in sin. You have that as a promise. He will always avenge anything that dwells in sin. The character of God here, though, needs to be clearly understood as based in justice. Now, Rick, sin is anything that misses the mark. We've learned that definition uh, over several years of of doing our podcast. Now, so that means God's vengeance is towards the worldly ones, towards false religions that miss the mark, and even false teachings in Christianity that miss the mark. Right. This is covering the full spectrum of humanity. Right, because God will always eventually avenge anything that dwells in sin. We have that as a promise, and we have to view God's vengeance through those eyes. And if we view them through those eyes, we can begin to see that it's not— it's not without purpose. It's not without um, uh, uh, good, good reason. It's not without just reason. So, so just reason. Uh, Psalm 89, verse 14. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Loving kindness and truth go before you. Okay. What's the foundation of God's throne? Righteousness justice. and justice. It's yep. so important to understand the basis of who God is and how he acts and what he does. So now, as we continue, verse 3 of Nahum 1, which we are going through, Nahum chapter 1, let's remember the highly symbolic nature of prophecy. And because if you don't understand it's symbolic, you're going to get completely confused by the words because what is said is a symbol of something else. And if you don't get that, then you're going you're gonna to look at God as, a, as the greatest monster that ever existed. Uh, so Nahum uh, chapter 1, verse 3. In whirlwind and storm is his way, and clouds are the dust beneath his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up the rivers, Bashan and Carmel wither. The blossoms of Lebanon wither. Okay, so you look. God dries up the sea. He dries up the rivers. He, he, he withers Bashan and Carmel. I mean, what's he doing? He's taking the water so people can, will, will, will go thirsty? I mean, you got to think about that. So, look, as storms, as a storm and clouds would represent great societal trouble, a whirlwind would most likely, would aptly, would most logically represent revolution. Again, storm and clouds generally represent societal trouble in Scripture. That's and the, we've had those for years. Yes. Yes, we have. And the, the storm can get worse. And when you get into that yes. whirlwind, you are in a concentrated storm of societal trouble. And that's when everything can get uprooted and destroyed. Okay? So, you know, it talks about a whirlwind at the beginning of that verse. And then it talks about drying up Bashan and Carmel, withering them. What? And, and Rick, that I love this point. Nothing just takes up space in God's Word. Yep. Bashan, Carmel, Lebanon. The names, there's a reason for them, there's great meaning in them, and we should seek what that meaning truly is. Okay, let's go to commentary from Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown on that very point. As Bashan was famed for its pastures, Carmel for its cornfields and vineyards, so Lebanon for its forests. There is nothing in the world so blooming that God cannot change it when he is wroth. 
Okay, so the point is that those, those areas were known for, for being very lush, and the point of the prophecy is God can change those things if and when he sees a need to. So, Jonathan, we really need to start looking at going deeply into these scriptures. With all that being said, what about this question? Does the earth survive the day of God's vengeance? Do any people, do any people even survive it? Good question. It's time for a CQ deep dive. That's how we find the answers. So this prophecy in Nahum, as with all day of vengeance prophecies, can easily send shivers down your spine and cause all kinds of fear. Because Jonathan, when you read this stuff about a whirlwind, about drying up the sea, about drying up the, 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 the rivers, about taking all of the water away and withering these entire areas, you think, wow, God is really angry. God is really mad. God is, is, is out of control mad. He is going after things in such a way that there, there is no stopping him. And it's like this freight train that's out of control and everybody's afraid of it. That's how we tend to look at God when we read these prophecies. But folks, it's not that way. Of course, if you go back to the Battle of Armageddon documentary on, on the imminent future from Aurora Productions, you may see it a little bit differently. So let's just go back to them just for by way of comparison before we take this deep dive into figuring out Scripture. Let's listen to another perspective on these things. I'm not looking forward to it. Everything's just going to keep going as normal. A lot of wars. We can't even begin to think about the increase in technology. Cash society with lots of problems. A new world order. You know, certain things like ozone and overpopulation, that type of stuff. What about you? Do you think there's any truth to the warnings of the modern-day prophets of doom? Is the world really teetering on the brink of catastrophe? Could indeed a comet or meteor collide with Earth and obliterate life on our planet? Will unparalleled natural disasters such as catastrophic earthquakes or floods destroy entire cities or countries? Will a breakdown in our computer system cause an abrupt ending to civilization as we know it? Or will mankind simply destroy itself? So Jonathan, they talk about comets and disease or the... The, the, the futility of mankind, and they just don't give you any choice. Don't give it sounds you... scary. It is scary. It's absolutely scary. And then when you read Bible prophecy and you see all these things talk about all this destruction, you say, well, these things are going to happen because that's what the Bible says. Well, no, that's not exactly what the Bible says. That's what it looks like the Bible says. But we have to dig deeper. We have to go down into this. We absolutely need to remember that God's vengeance is always in context with God's plan. Always, never, without exception. It's always in contact with God's plan. And God's plan is entirely built around the ransom price of Jesus. We established that right at the beginning when Jesus chose those particular scriptures to read about releasing the captivity, about you know healing the sick, about bringing life. That's God's plan. So how do you then deal with the next verses in Nahum? Let's go back to Nahum, the prophecy in Nahum uh, of, of God's vengeance. And the question is, will God's vengeance squash us like bugs? Nahum chapter 1, verse 5. Mountains quake because of him, 
and the hills dissolve. Indeed, the earth is upheaved by his presence, the world and all the inhabitants in it. All right. There's a lot of things in there. We got mountains, we got hills, we got the earth being upheaved, the world and all the inhabitants in it. You're looking at a lot of very bad language here in terms of, you know, doom and destruction. You're right, Rick. And we, we always know that mountains represent governments, and we've learned that for years. Okay. Now, now let's start with that, because if you understand Bible symbolism, you can look at a verse like this, and what you see is entirely different than what an untrained eye reading this verse would see. And it's so important to try to get our eyes trained on exactly what the verse is saying. So, like you said, mountains equal government. So it says mountains quake because of him. Governments will quake because of him. That gives you an idea. What else? What's the next part? Well, hills. Um, organizations of men are hills. Okay, and in the verse it says, and the hills dissolve. So it's not like God is breaking up planet Earth. He's breaking up the organizations of sinful man on planet Earth. And then, and what's the next um, uh, le uh, level of symbolism here? Well, the Earth is upheaved by its present, the present organization of society itself, right? Right. So the Earth itself is upheaved by the presence of God. And so the, the whole organization of society is put into upheaval. And, and Jonathan, we're not quite there yet, but we can certainly see the, the rumblings of that, can't we? We can, on, absolutely. On a worldwide basis. And then finally, the last piece, the last piece of symbolism is what? The, um, it is um, the entire order of earthly influence. Okay, so the world and all mm -hmm. the inhabitants in it. And the world would, would symbolize, then, the entire order of earthly influence, perhaps even including angelic influence as well. We're not, you know, that's, that's a little speculation there. So, so what happens to all of these things? There's quaking. Quaking, dissolving, upheaval. <laughs> not good. But it's not the physical planet that is being broken apart before your very eyes. It, and, and really, I picture Satan's present evil world. He's the prince of this world. And his grip, he's losing control right. of what he created exactly 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 that's what god's vengeance is really about so the mountains the governments of men the organizations of men the social order of men and all of the inhabitants are going to, to suffer upheaval but it's not the breaking apart of the physical world on which we stand let's go to nam 1 verse 6 now we got through that verse okay but now you know it gets a little bit a little bit worse who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the burning of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken up by him. Okay, so now, Jonathan, if it's not enough to make the mountains quake and the hills dissolve, uh, now it says, who can endure the burning of his anger and his wrath is poured out like fire? And, you know, we just said, well, you know, it's not the earth being broken up, but just as rocks are, being, are, are broken up by him. So what... What are you supposed to do with all of that? Well, look, the anger of God against sin and rebellion will be displayed in a way that will never be forgotten. And th this verse, and it, it's hard to say about, about all of the symbolism here, but it sounds almost like a volcanic eruption, doesn't it? It really does. Okay, right. wrath being poured out like fire. And literally what lava does is it breaks up anything in its path. 
Mm-hmm. Okay. Destroys it. Right. So it's almost like a volcanic er- eruption whose objective is to destroy any and all influence that stands against the clarity of God's justice and righteousness. It's, and Rick, I, I love the point you brought. Will never be forgotten. An eternal lesson yeah. for humanity. Right. 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 So the vengeance of God has to be dramatic enough to never be forgotten, but it's got to be focused enough to fit within God's plan, and it's got to be righteous enough to not step outside of the, 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 the character of God because we believe God is love. Put all that together. <laughs> it, it, there's such wisdom behind God and, and his prophecies. And we just have to learn to understand them. So we're talking about the day of vengeance. And again, the question, will God squash us like bugs? Well, look, God is going to up, upend all of human governments and human uh, imperfect human ways of doing things. No question about that. No question. But does he bring us to such an end that there's no recovery? Well, we'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. We welcome all comments or questions, even if you disagree with us. Give us a call. We're live at 866-985-4ALL. That's 866-985-4255. And again, folks, remember the picture language. The idea of anger that overthrows all opposition is appropriate. It is appropriate. Anger that overthrows all opposition is appropriate when we remember who it is who is angry and what his anger is being dispatched to accomplish. You see, if you just focus on the anger verses and say, look at what God is going to do, look how horrible he must be, you're missing the point because you can't, you've got to be able to back up and see the whole tapestry in order to understand that one little detail of it. It's just So one. it's the who and the what, but also the why. Yes. Why, it is, uh, why is it that he's angry? Right. Why is he angry? What is he doing about it? What's his anger focused on? And then what will the outcome be? That's such an important question that we're going to be developing as we go further. So now let's keep moving through Nahum chapter 1, verses 7 through 9. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who take refuge in him. Okay, now there seems all of a sudden, after all of this destruction, now we've got lava even coming down. Now you've got a ray of hope, something different. Let's continue. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of its sight. See, it's too good to be true, right? (laughs) And will pursue his enemies into darkness. Whatever you devise against the Lord, he will make a complete end of it. Distress will not rise up twice. So you just saw that ray of hope saying God is a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge of him in him, but he's going to overflow everything with this great flood. So it's like, what do you do? And, and Rick, um, we understand through the scriptures that Christendom is pictured as a counterfeit of Christ. And he's trying, they're trying to hold on to this present evil world, which Satan is ruling. And the doctrines of devils that are described in 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 3, and believing old wives' tales, those things aren't going away. They're stuck in their error, and the Lord has had enough of it. And, and that's what the day of vengeance is, is the Lord has had enough. It doesn't mean that he is now going to burst because he can't stand it any longer. He's had enough of it because 
the time for it to be over is is coming and that's really what we're going to get to get to next but see look we went from fire that destroys evil now to water a flood that symbolizes truth water often symbolizes truth the restless seas the restless uh, uh, seas typically represent the restlessness of humanity but water in itself often symbolizes truth so you have this flood of truth that 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 takes out all of this other stuff and then it talks about the habitations of darkness darkness would symbolize ignorance this will all come to a thorough end once ended, these influences, and this is, Jonathan, this is very encouraging. In the middle of all this vengeance and wrath, this is encouraging because once these end, these influences will not rise up again because it says distress will not rise up twice. Well, wait a minute, Rick. Now, come on. Does this have to be our time <laughs> when we're living that this vengeance has to take place? Why us? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, why now, right? Exactly. Well, and that's such an important question. Why now? Is it, you know, through a lot of history, Christianity has talked about the day of vengeance being at their time and their time again and again and again. And so are we just repeating what tradition has always said or is there something more to it? And, and really it comes down to the time for the day of vengeance, which is incidentally not yet. We are not in the day of vengeance. We are before it. But the time for it comes when certain things are finished in terms of, of God's plan. So, so to get an answer to the why now question, let's go back to Genesis again. Genesis 1, 27 and 28. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Okay, so why are we talking about creation when we're talking about all this destruction? And the answer is God gave man dominion over the earth and the ability to fill it. And now, now that's important because that was God's command. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Once the now sinful and satanic dominion proves its futility and the earth has been filled, then it's time to intervene. But not until then. Then it becomes time to intervene. So what we're saying is once the earth gets to the point of being filled, that is, that's a signal that, that, that it's time for God's intervention to put an end to the folly that sin has brought to, to this world. And this next scripture is not on point, but in principle it's on point about how God works in terms of vengeance. Genesis fifteen sixteen. Then in the fourth generation they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. So that's interesting because the Amorites were, were, were stood very, very clearly against God and God and, and they were cursed. But it's interesting because it says that it's going to take four generations for the iniquity of the Amorites to come to its full completion, to come to its, to its, its conclusion, to get to a point to show that there is absolutely nothing good here left whatsoever. Jonathan, that's how God works. He doesn't jump ahead. He works in terms of letting things go to the point where, whether it's good or it's bad, it's, it's allowed to come to its fruition 
on its own. God is not pushing the evil along. He's allowing it to go unfettered. And so once it gets to that point, then something, uh, something has to be done. So God will not allow the utter man-made sin-driven destruction of humanity to happen. He won't allow it to happen. And I just want to make this point, Jonathan. He won't allow it to happen. Got it. <laughs> okay. And, and let's go back to Matthew uh, 24, verse 22. We started out uh, with these verses right at the beginning, but we need to just remind ourselves of the words of Jesus in relation to this. Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Okay, so go ahead. I'm sorry. And, and that just reminds me of we're really focusing on timing. God's timing yeah. is perfect. Yeah. It's just on time. It, it's not early. It's not late. It's when it means the most, it's, it's there. And, and, you know, you think about raising children, and when a child is in a situation where they're doing something— uh, there are times, and I remember this, with, especially with my son, who was always getting into trouble. You know, he just liked to be on the edge all the time. And there are times where you, you kind of watch and say, okay, I see where this is going. I could intervene now, or I can wait. And by waiting, he's going to understand how it hurts. I'll wait. And sure enough, as the father sits back and waits, <laughs> what happens is the, 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 the wrongdoing comes to its full, and you say, okay, that's enough. He's learned the lesson now. So that's what God is doing, and that's what God, the, the day of vengeance is going to be all about. So God's vengeance lesson at this point, Jonathan, is what? God's vengeance will actually be a preserving action for humanity. Okay. Say that again. God's vengeance will actually be a preserving action for humanity. That is so counterintuitive to what most people think about God's vengeance. It is a preserving action for humanity. You think, well, wait a minute, wait, how is it that you can come to a point of saying such things as that? I mean, that just sounds like it is so completely far off. A preserving action is good news, but how do we know that there is light at the end of the vengeance tunnel? Our CQ team has the tools. Time to go to work. We're reviewing the evidence. Now let's put it together. So what we're really talking about here is something very, very powerful. And Jonathan, if we can get our head around it, that the idea that God's vengeance is actually a really good thing for all of humanity, not just the people that you like, not just the people that believe like you, but for everybody else, it's a good thing. If we can get our head around that idea, then this whole thing changes a little bit in terms of what you can expect as a result. And remember, Bible prophecy is written in symbolic language for a reason, to help us understand, those of us who are searching, to help us understand what's what. Now, before we get into the using those tools that we were just talking about and, and, and really finding the answer here, let's go to a National Geographic uh, uh, program done on Armageddon. And they're talking about, in, in this little soundbite, they're talking about electronic Armageddon. That sounds kind of scary, and yeah, rightfully so. It should be kind of scary. It may be the most powerful weapon you've never heard of. 
A sudden burst of electromagnetic energy that destroys anything electric in the blink of an eye. The power grid. Computer control systems. Radio communication. All stop. It can come from nature or from an enemy. It doesn't matter. The result is the same. With little or no warning, life as you know it will end. What would you do if you found out an EMP, electromagnetic pulse attack, is imminent? Would you know what to do? So are you scared yet? <laughs> Whoa. You know, and, and, and that's the thing about, about, about those kinds of specials. You know, the, the big thing is, you know, put, the, put the, the, the fear in the front so people will pay attention. And unfortunately, that's how human nature seems to work. And unfortunately, it just drives us down the wrong pathway so many times. Because the point is that God's vengeance is real, is factual, will come, but it's for a purpose. It's for a very specific, distinct purpose. And there is light at the end of the tunnel. Okay? And now first, there's two phases to this light. Okay? First, we, those who are believers and who are walking in the footsteps of Jesus, are shown light not at the end of the tunnel, but light through the tunnel. And Rick, um, but that's for those who are really searching and, and studying God's Word. It's not for those that are in Christian are Christian by name uh, and just say, I, I, I believe I'm saved. Yeah, not, We're talking about those that love the Lord and are trying to do God's will daily. And you say, well, how do you know it's not for, for those? Because the fear of all of these things will be overtaking if you are not really trying to find out what the Word of God says. So for, for those in name only— this doesn't do you any good because when the reality of the vengeance comes, you see it in too big a way rather than seeing through it as God would have us to see. Let's give an example of that. In Psalm 46, verses 1 through 11, we're going to break this up into a lot of pieces. Psalm 46, 1 to 11. God is our refuge and strength, our very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change, and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam. Though the mountains quake at its swelling pride, Selah. Okay, so again, you've got the mountains and all of these things, just like in the Nahum prophecy. But it says, God is our refuge and our strength. Our refuge and strength carries us through the fall of governments into the hands of the restless masses. Okay, it talks about the restless sea in, in these verses. In their swelling, clamor, and fight for their perceived rights. And, and Jonathan, it's interesting, and, and at some point we'll, we'll need to do a program just on the idea of the perceived rights of mankind and how far off the, the tracks, how far off the rails that, that that has gone. But what this is saying is in the midst of these things, the human buildings of society crumbling, not literal buildings, but society crumbling, we have this refuge and strength. And that's shown to us now in verses 4 and 5. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved. 
God will help her when morning dawns. So you see the contrast between the, the mountain slipping into the heart of the sea, though it, its waters roar with foam, and then it says, Then there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the river of truth. You see the difference between the, the, the way the water is restless, the restless humanity, and this river of truth that makes glad the city of God. We have a spiritually safe dwelling place within the knowledge and faith in God's plan. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide in the shadow of the Almighty, Psalm 91. And you find protection. And yet the trouble still grows. Rick, that reminds me of those true followers of Christ who were tortured to death and burnt at the stake uh, during the Dark Ages. They had spiritual safe dwelling places in their heart and mind, and yet in such awful trouble. And they had those spiritual dwelling places, you're right, in their hearts and their minds, but sometimes there was no place to hide. But they still had the safety of God's protection. You think, well, how can that be? Well, stay with us on that. We'll, we'll get to it. Let, let's go back again. Psalm 46, uh, verses 6 through 8. The nations made an uproar. The kingdoms tottered. He raised his voice. The earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold, Selah. Come, behold the works of the Lord, who has wrought desolations in the earth. So again, you look at this and say, okay, you keep saying that it's all going to stay stay put. But in this verse, it says the earth melts and that the, de- the earth is made desolate. So you say, well, how does that work? Just remember the verses before. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the Most High. Okay, so you've got this tremendous contrast in what's happening, and though that, that dwelling place is a spiritual dwelling place, but while we walk this earth, it comes with us in that earthly walk. This is the day of vengeance and progress, where the kingdoms totter and the earth melts. The, the, the societies break apart and they fall apart. Look and see what the anger of God destroys. Now, let's look and see what the anger of God accomplishes because everybody focuses on what it destroys everybody says it makes the earth melt and there's fire and there's brimstone and there's earthquakes and there's whirlwinds and it's destruction 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 yeah hold on just 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 hold on let's look at the next verses verses 9 through 11 same psalm psalm 46 he makes wars to cease to the end of the earth he breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two He burns the chariots with fire. Cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Selah. So how do you say that he makes wars to cease to end in the earth How do you say that I will be exalted among the nations, I will be exalted in the earth, if the earth just melted? See, Jonathan, you've got to see the symbolism of prophecy. Otherwise, it's just nonsense. You're saying, well, it contradicts itself. No, it doesn't contradict itself. It unfolds itself if you know how to look at it. And that just made me think of one of Satan's greatest tools that he uses to keep control and keep people down is fear. Yeah. And if you take these things totally literally, of course, you'll be scared and you'll be paralyzed and and you'll lose your faith, which is what he's trying to accomplish. Right. But 
that's not the way God works. Well, and read the rest of the verses for goodness sake. Okay. You yes. Know, don't yes. just focus on the ones that talk about the earth melting and the fire and all of those things. Talk, focus on the ones in the same chapter, the very next verses. And it's interesting to me how these verses come after the earth melts. They come after uh, um, the, the desolation in the earth. It says, I, God, will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. After all of that, it's got to tell you that it's symbol, symbolic language. You've got to hang on to it. See, this is the light through the tunnel. Our light is now if we are willing to look for it and grab hold of it. We have to be courageous. We need to give hope to others. Our protection, you know, you were talking about protection, Jonathan. You know, yes. and, and sometimes, especially in the dark ages, they had no place to go. They had no, no place to hide. Yep. Some, sometimes our protection is in death because it's only through death that life will be gained. And that is eternal life. And when you compare that to what this is, <laughs> not even close. This is Christian Questions, your weekly live podcast to help you think about the Bible like you never have before. Talk to us at ChristianQuestions.com or call us now at 866-985-4255. All right, so Jonathan, you know, we're, we're looking at, at Psalm 46, and we use that psalm as an example of, for believers who are following in the footsteps of Jesus, they are shown light through the tunnel. And that is shown to us in the way these verses are put together and showing us the end result in the midst of all of that destruction and starting out saying, look, God is our refuge, our strength, our help in trouble. That gives you great, great hope. But what about everybody else? They don't get the light through the tunnel. But what they do get, the second part here, is the light at the end of the vengeance tunnel. There is light at the end of the vengeance tunnel for unbelievers as well. Now, now, and Rick, that's a point that Christendom forgets to bring out. Either forgets or doesn't want to. I don't know. Sometimes I wonder about that because, you know, if you can have a gospel that, that brings fear to people, then they're going to come because you, you, you're, you're the one that protects them. The gospel is full of hope through the fear. The prophecies are given to us, and yes, they are fearful, but they also show us hope. Here's a... Jonathan, this next one is another great example of how you have the fear of prophecy and the incalculable hope that follows it. Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 8 for 9. 8 and there, mm -hmm. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up as a witness. Indeed, my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out on them my indignation, all my burning anger, for all the earth will be devoured by the fire of my zeal. Okay. Death, destruction, and mayhem, right? That's what it sounds like, right? That's what you've got. And look, the day of vengeance is full of mayhem. There's no question about it. And there is death, and there is destruction, and there's all those things. But it is not the end. You see, again, the necessary destruction of the day of vengeance is evident. This verse, just like in Psalm 46, just like in Nahum, the first chapter, all told us that this is necessary. For the unbeliever, this would be a cause for great fear. The verse you just read, it's like, oh, no, not again. I mean, the Bible keeps bringing this stuff up, and it's each time I read it, it gets worse. The earth will be devoured by the fire of my zeal, for goodness sakes. That's what this one says. Okay, so 
for the unbeliever, you read this, this would be cause for great fear, and you'd see God through this fear as an, as an incredible monster. What's my favorite word, Jonathan? Context, Rick. <laughs> if we put it in context, if we put context in place, it changes everything. So when you have that individual who doesn't have the faith, who can't see the light through the tunnel, you've got to show them the context. So let's read now the very next verse in Zephaniah chapter 3. We read verse 8. Well, what does verse 9 said? Now remember, the end of verse 8 ended, for all the earth will be devoured by the fire of my zeal. So what does verse 9 say? For then I will give to the people's purified lips, that all of them may call on the name of the Lord to serve him shoulder to shoulder. So, wait a minute. <laughs> the earth couldn't have been devoured by fire and burned up to a, to a the charcoal crisp. Not literally, Rick. No, absolutely not. Because the, the scripture says the very next verse, then I will give the people purified lips. This can't be the true followers of Christ because they would have had purified lips beforehand, right? You're right. Yes. Okay, so then after God shows his anger, shows his vengeance upon sin and unrighteousness, then he says, I will give the people purified lips that they may call upon the name of God. I mean, not just purified lips, but a direction. I will bring them back to me is what God is saying in this. God's vengeance and anger bring purified life, and, they, and it brings harmony. I mean, Jonathan, the day of vengeance is that's, awesome. That's, that's good news in the end. In the end. That's what the word gospel means. Right, good news. But you've got to get through the bad stuff to get to the good stuff. But the good part about the bad stuff is you know that it's bringing the good stuff. You've got to remember well, it that way. Go ahead. If they're going to serve him shoulder to shoulder, they got the lesson, they learned it, and they're moving forward, and they're praising and honoring God. Right. Absolutely. And, and so there's a transformation that has to take place. Absolutely. That is what the Day of Judgment will be about, but that's a subject for another day. Let's go to one more verse here uh, in this segment. Psalm uh, 76, verses 8 through 10. You caused judgment to be heard from heaven. The earth feared and was still. When God arose to judgment, to save all the humble of the earth, Selah, for the wrath of man shall praise you. With a remnant of wrath, you will gird yourself. The beginning of verse 10 there, Jonathan, is a very powerful statement because we've been trying to put the day of vengeance into context, saying, yes, it is God's anger at sin, it's God's anger at unrighteousness, it's God's anger at the usurpation of Satan, it's God's anger at mankind following Satan, following sin to the end of destruction of everything, that if those days were not shortened, man would destroy himself. But what it says here in verse 10 is the wrath of man will praise God. Now you think about that. What that's telling us is the day of vengeance is going to bring all of this to come to a crashing halt, and the anger and the frustration of mankind will end up being a praise to God because it will show his sovereignty in the end. So what's the God's vengeance lesson for these verses? The end of the world as we know it will in fact mark the beginning of the world as we dreamed it. Such a difference. You know that there's that song that says, you know, it's the end of the world as we know it. 
But you know, God's vengeance does bring the end of the world as we know it. But it brings the beginning of something special, of something bigger, of something better. It begins the be- brings the beginning of the world as we all dreamed it, because everybody wants peace and harmony. And that is really what God's plan is all about. At last, this is what the whole world has been waiting for. But is this the only way to get humanity to straighten out? Do we have to experience God's vengeance? There are easy questions where answers come quickly. Let's tackle this big question that isn't so easy. God's anger and the day of vengeance are just results upon a world that has shunned its creator and his righteousness and followed after the sinful ways of godlessness and idolatry. Do we have to experience God's vengeance? Yes. It is the natural end result of a world completely gone bad. And Jonathan, if we can just get our heads around that, that God's vengeance is put in place as a stopper for the anger and the, and the, and, and the, um, and, and the uh, sinfulness of man. It's put in place to stop it. And that's, like you said, that is the good news. Proverbs chapter 1, verses 24 to 32, really helps us to understand uh, the, the, um, the attitude that mankind has now towards God, which brings us to this day of vengeance. Proverbs 1, 24 to 32. Let's just do uh, 24, and 20, 24 to 26 to start. Because I called and you refused, I stretch out my hand, and no one paid attention, and you neglected all my counsel, and did not want my reproof. And I will also laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your dread comes. Okay, so first of all, it's interesting. I called, and you refused. I stretched out my hand, and no one paid attention. You neglected my counsel. You didn't want my reproof. Doesn't that sound like a rebellious child? Absolutely. It really does. <laughs> Sounds like that teenager, right? Who yes. you, you're, you're reaching out to, you're trying to communicate with, you're trying to, to, to help them understand their life, you're trying to help them take good steps in life, and they're just, they're, they're refusing. They stre- you stretch out their hand and they're not paying attention. You know, the, all your counsel, they're neglecting. Do they want your reproof? No. Go away, Dad. You bother me. You know, that's the, that's the attitude of that rebellious teenager. Folks, we are like that rebellious teenager in a sinful state when it comes to God. And this is what it's describing. The wisdom, you know, and it says at the end here, you know, I will also laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your dread comes. Now is God mocking us? Because that's kind of what it sounds like. But, you know, the wisdom, and I put the word wisdom here in quotes, the wisdom of men is appropriately a mockery of justice and mercy before God. And again, when you look at your child and you see them going down, uh, and, and I, I've had this very personal experience with, with some of my kids, you know, going down a road I know they shouldn't go down, and there are times when you just let it go, and you go, oh man, is he going to feel that later? That's, the, that's I think, what, that's what that scripture is expressing, is I know where this is going. Oh boy, do I know where this is going. But you need to go there. You need to go there so you can learn the lesson and never want to go down that road again. And again, Proverbs 1, 27 and 28 are continuing to describe the rebelliousness 
of the world, of humanity, against God. When your dread comes like a storm, and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you, then they will call on me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but they will not find me. So you say, well, wait a minute, what's happening here? And this is the part where God makes humanity sweat. And again, this is, this is the kind of thing where, okay, now it's starting to turn sour. Now it's starting to go bad. And, you know, what do people do when they have an accident or they're faced with a, a sudden tragedy? What do they always do? They turn do? to God. Yeah. They turn to God. And they ask you, God, go ahead. Even if they're not religious. Right. right. <laughs> and, and they ask God for help. And they ask God for deliverance. And suddenly, we expect God to now pay attention to us because why because we are now paying attention to him what about all of the righteousness all of the goodness all of the godliness that we rejected before that point what about that how about a snapshot of that Rick Noah and the flood yeah and when the waters came people wait 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 <laughs> yeah yeah I get I, it I now. shouldn't have done that yeah uh, I, I'm sorry I didn't listen right Right. Too late. And, and you know, and, and those people will find resurrection. They, they'll, Absolutely. They'll, they'll be given opportunity. But yes, the point will. is, the world as a whole is going down this road of that, of that incredibly rebellious teenager. And God is saying, you're going to get to a point where you're going to turn to me, and I'm not answering. Because you need to learn that by ignoring me all of this time through all of these generations, and folks, we have— you look at the world, we have ignored him, that you're, you're going to have to pay the consequences of what, what happens. People so often look to God in their desperation. They will not find him. For the desperation was a direct result of the replacing God with the idolatry of self and of greed. That's what happens. That's the world we live in. Look around you. Look at our educational system, look at our political system, look at our social system, and you're going to find it is God-less. Wherever you look, it is God-less. And come a time where things go really bad and people start to look up, he's not going to answer. Not yet. Not until the right time. But anyway, let's get back to the, uh, the, the, the condemning of that kind of action and the warning that comes with it. Again, we're in Proverbs chapter 1. Now we're uh, verses 29 to 32. Because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, they would not accept my counsel. They spurned all my reproof. So they shall eat of the fruit of their own way and be sat, uh, satiated. Sati thank you. Satiated with their own devices. For the waywardness of the naive will kill them and the complacency of fools will destroy them. These are power-packed verses here in terms of what they tell us. They hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. They would not accept my counsel. Uh, they spurned my reproof. Um, so they will eat of the fruit of their own way. And, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting, John. It says they hated knowledge. They didn't choose the fear of the Lord. They didn't choose to reverence God. They, they didn't, let me translate that into the world today. The world today chooses to not respect the old ways of integrity and of righteousness, of right 
and wrong. We now have a really hard time saying something is wrong. Well, if it's right for you, if it feels okay, it must be okay. That's what this is saying. It says you've gone, you will be, how does it put it? You will be satiated with your own devices. The waywardness of the naive will kill them. It is naive to believe that there is not solid right and solid wrong. It is naive to believe that just because I want it and I feel it, I should have it. It is naive to believe that the world should be built around me. It doesn't work that way. And we are headed down this exact road that this uh, proverb is, is talking to us about. So, so this all sounds so hopeless. And yet, God in his mercy provided Jesus as the pivot point for his human creation. And because, because of the sacrifice of Jesus, the prophecies of destruction that we've talked all podcast about are connected with prophecies of the greatest hope that humanity can ever imagine. And this is what a lot of Christians miss. They miss the great hope that's attached to these prophecies of great destruction. Let's turn to one of the prophecies, Jonathan, that I believe carries some of the greatest hope in all of Scripture. And it is Isaiah chapter 35. Let's go, uh, verse, go uh, verses, uh, let's just start with verses 1 through 3 to begin with. Okay. The wilderness and the desert will be glad, and the desert will rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It will blossom profusely and rejoice with rejoicing and shout of joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of God. Encourage the exhausted strengthen the feeble. Okay, so this starts out with great, great positive messages. The desert will be glad. Now, does that mean that if you go up in space and you take a picture of the desert, it's going to have a big old smile on its face? <laughs> no, come on. <laughs> you know, let, let, let's, let's understand what it's talking about. It will rejoice. It will blossom. It is a promise that the desert can produce some kind of beautiful abundance. And it describes that beautiful abundance in the next few verses. And it says they will see the glory and the majesty of God. And then, so it says, you know, this is coming. This is good. Encourage those who are exhausted because this is a prophecy that has great, great positiveness that you can really stand up with, stand up for, and get courage from. And then you get to verse 4. Say to those with anxious heart, take courage, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. The recompense of God will come, but he will save you. So it says, take courage, fear not. And then it talks about God's vengeance. Now, again, we're going to get further into these verses in a few minutes. But you have this introduction of how the earth is changing and becoming a place of, of fruitage, a place of wonderful things. And you're saying, take heart. Take heart. It's wonderful. It's good. Get strength from this. And then it says, Behold, your God comes with vengeance. You can't separate the vengeance of God from the glory of what the vengeance brings. You can't separate them. Folks, they have to be together because God's vengeance stops the destructiveness of this present evil world. It ends it. It, 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 it permanently utterly destroys 
all of the governmental ways that, and, and, and the rules that we've set toward destruction. It puts an end to them and brings us to a much, much higher, better, bigger, stronger, more fabulous place. But you got to go through the vengeance first because you need to stop it in a dramatic way that will be learned forever. So one more, well, there's two more, but one more uh, God's vengeance lesson right here. What's that? We need God's vengeance. Let it come, for though it will be fierce, it brings life and joy never before experienced by humanity. And if we can get God's vengeance into our hearts and minds with that thought in mind, let it come, for through it, for, for the, though it's going to be fierce, though it's going to be difficult, though the vengeance of God, and, and, and Jonathan, here's the thing, the vengeance of God, God doesn't break things apart in terms of society. God lets things come to the full and directs their downfall. There's a big difference between the two. God's not pulling the plug on things. He's saying, okay, now it's time for the plug to be pulled. I'll let you guys do it now. Because, you know, that's, that's where you're going. That's what it's, it's bringing you to. And Rick, this is a great program for people to go to ChristianQuestions.com and sign up for CQ Rewind. Yeah. It has graphics. It has illustrations. You can follow the thread of what these prophecies symbolize so that when you're reading these prophecies, you can now put in place these symbols to truly understand that there is good news at the end of the vengeance. Right. And so it's putting things in context, letting the context of these verses really really take their effects and and jonathan you know we started the podcast with that background music about armageddon and the and the destruction and all of that so we thought it's appropriate that we end the podcast with a little bit of background music that gives you a sense of peace and tranquility and the promise of god that vengeance actually brings let's go back to isaiah 35 verses 5 through 10. then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped then the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. For waters will break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. The scorched land will become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals, its resting place. Grass becomes reeds and rushes. And, you know, Jonathan, these verses started out with that idea of the eyes of the blind being opened and the ears of the deaf being unstopped. That's what Jesus came and showed us at his first advent. He showed us healing. He showed us, this is what I'm bringing you by the sacrifice of my life. He didn't talk about the day of vengeance much because it was something that was not relevant because he had to get that message across. The message of hope had to be put in place before the destruction was understood so you had the hope to lean on. Let's continue. A highway will be there, a roadway, and it will be called the Highway of Holiness. The unclean will not travel on it, but it will be for him who walks that way, and fools will not wander on it. No lion will be there, nor will any ravenous beast go up on it. These will not be found there, but the redeemed will walk there. So again, you have this sense of the beauty of, the, of humanity in harmony because God brought them there through the day of vengeance where they destroyed the evil and now gives that resurrected humanity an opportunity toward life. And let's finish this up. 
And the ransom to the Lord will return and come with joyful shouting to Zion, with everlasting joy upon their heads. They will find gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. And you think about that. They will find everlasting joy upon their heads. Sorrow and sighing will flee away. I mean, folks, you think about, we're talking about the day of vengeance. What about this? Because this comes after vengeance. We know that because in these verses, it talked about God's vengeance. But this is the result of God's vengeance. It is so powerful. It is so monumental. It is so clear if you just look for it. That's the key here. So, Jonathan, and, go ahead. I'm and sorry. in Revelation 21, verse 3, uh, talks about how God will be a part of humanity. The tabernacle of God will be with men, and he shall dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God will wipe away the tears of their eyes. So what is the final God, God's vengeance lesson? This is important. What's the final one? Once God's vengeance accomplishes its specific mission, it becomes obvious that his vengeance is proof of his pure and righteous love for his human creation. So we can see the clear-cut proof of God's love when we understand how to put God's vengeance in the context of God's plan. And folks, if you're not going to put the vengeance of God in the context of God's plan, our request to you is please ignore it. Don't read about it. Don't think about it because you're going to ruin your own life. You're going to give yourself more, more agita than anybody deserves. God's vengeance is so powerful in its positiveness in what it brings us and how it brings us there. We need to see it and, uh, and embrace it because the end of it is something grand. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what God's vengeance brings to us. Folks, we hope you've enjoyed being with us today. We certainly have enjoyed talking with you about a really important subject and hope you can see this subject in a different way than you ever saw it before. For Jonathan and Rick and Christian Questions, the day of vengeance is fearful, but it brings greatness. Until next week, think about it. And folks, please, we love hearing from you, our listeners. Let us know what you thought about today's topic. Suggest future topics. Start a conversation with us at ChristianQuestions.com. Make sure to download our app. Search Christian Questions in your app store, and we look forward to bringing you another program next week. <laughs>